I want to start today with where I left off last week, where I ended the message with, with two applications. And one was to reject the dehumanizing of people because of race, politics, economics, religion, sexual proclivity, any reason. Anytime we, we dehumanize and kind of you know, separate people from ourselves, you know, we're not like those really bad people, that's an issue. I'll address this later. The other was to embrace a, a theology that welcomes social justice. And it occurred to me this week that I think there are a lot of people that stumble over this concept. Because as proclaimers of the gospel, we might be tempted to think that, you know, in proclaiming the gospel, we got to do the spiritual stuff and not mess with any of this other stuff, these societal ills. Just stick to the spiritual stuff. Stick to the gospel, right? Uh, there was an article that was in The Atlantic uh, this month written by Michael Gerson. Some of you might recognize him. He was a, a speechwriter for George W. Bush. The article was titled this, The Last Temptation, and then subtitled, how evangelicals, once culturally confident, became an anxious minority seeking political protection from the least traditionally religious president in living memory. It's quite a subtitle. Now, he's a Wheaton grad, so I think he's, he's familiar with, with church life. Now, Gerson certainly makes some salient points. But one thing that caught my eye was that, and I, I alluded to this last week, many Christians look forward to a literal millennial kingdom to come after the second coming of Christ. It's called premillennialism. And he said in his article, and I quote, that premillennialism is, is the reason that social activism was deemed irrelevant to the most essential task, the work of preparing oneself and helping others prepare for final judgment. So again, premillennialism would see social activism as irrelevant. Now, there's much to say about this particular charge, and I certainly can't speak for all Christians who take this theological stance about a, about a literal kingdom to come, but I will say this, that it seems rather simplistic to me to say that my view of eschatology, or, or that means the study of future things, will determine my contribution to societal issues. And the reason I say that is because a theology of social work, at least in my mind, fundamentally at least, isn't related to eschatology. For instance, I think there are plenty of reasons for us as believers to embrace being engaged with the culture and with society. For instance, the image of God quality in every human being necessitates that we give respect to all humans, regardless of their age, their sex, their race, or their religion. The injunction to love our neighbor compels us, should it not? It compels us to do whatever we can to improve the plight of the suffering, would it not? What an encouragement that during Katrina... The biggest contributors to helping was the Christian church. Millions of dollars were given to help. That's the way it should be. 
The fruit of the gospel also moves us with compassion. To not focus on ourselves like we used to, but to focus on others. That we are, we are a part on this earth, we are a part of a new kingdom. Also, the parable of the Good Samaritan faces us with the reality of daily needs that we come up against and that, and that in, in dealing with those needs with other people, we have to fight against prejudice that gets in the way of our compassion, as illustrated with the Good Samaritan. The example of Jesus also demonstrates his willingness to meet physical needs along with the spiritual. And in addition to this, consider church history. Somebody like uh, William Wilberforce, who made significant contributions to improve the human condition by battling slavery in England. He did this being moved primarily by Genesis 1 and 2, that we are all a part of a human family. And so these reasons, I think, are very practical for us and germane to CCC because of our, our Zone 1 Blitz the last few years alongside the, uh, the, the city of Springfield and with Convoy of Hope, um, our partnership with Fairbanks, Life 360, and the inner city of Springfield, the Unity Project with trying to unite uh, white and black churches together, uh, our partnership with Weaver School, all of these are endeavors. We're not trying to keep up with the evangelical Joneses here, okay? But what we're doing is we're responding to the image of God, to the love of our neighbor, to the fruit of the gospel, to the injunction of, of the good Samaritan, to the gospel of Christ, the example of Christ. And church history, all of these things compel us. Now, certainly there can be a danger of social efforts replacing the gospel, but we have to recognize that gospel efforts do not call us to social retreat, nullify social engagement. If anything, it elevates it for the reasons that I just gave. So with this in mind, we go to Acts 10 and we continue our series of clean and unclean. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. So in Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, we know this from the first eight verses, a man named Cornelius had an angel that told him, go fetch Peter, who's in Joppa. The next day, Peter is praying, and he falls into a trance. Apparently, God speaks to people while they're asleep in dreams, and he speaks to people while awake in a trance. And while the food was being prepared, Peter fell into a trance. Now, I've often fallen into euphoria when I have, you know, ribs on the smoker, but I think Peter's trance was something that was quite supernatural. Peter was praying during one of the three prescribed times of prayer for the Jews. We made this point last week about Cornelius that praying seems to be the optimum time in which God communicates to his people. 
and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, eat, kill, and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, the four corners may refer to kind of the the worldwide dimensions of this vision, in this case of of the gospel, and of its significant uh, significance. We see this, for instance, in Revelation 7-1, where it talks about the four corners of the earth. Again, speaking to how it's all pervasive. I think the main point, though, is the fact of us recognizing that the origination of this message is God speaking to Peter. And so Peter can have confidence in the veracity and the authority of this message. I mean, God has spoken through prophets in the Old Covenant, and he's spoken through Christ and the apostles in the New Covenant. God is the originator of the old and the new. And so God is given the authority and he has the prerogative to change either. I mean, the only person who can change a law is one who's in that position, is one who has that authority. And because a law is changed doesn't mean that the other laws are absolutely meaningless. For instance, we don't claim that the the state of Missouri was made irrelevant because it has changed the speed limit. It may have changed the speed limit that was, you know, archaic, maybe from 1950 or something. And now we don't say all the other laws are needless. That's exactly what people do with the Old Testament. When they say, well, some things have changed, so therefore just throw the Old Testament out. Well, God has not changed his character. He's only changed how he deals with his people in the ceremonial and civil laws. We cannot claim that the Old Testament is no longer the word of God just because God has gone to a new way in how he's dealing with his people. God has every right to change the Old Testament ceremonial and civil laws intended for Israel. Why? Because he's God. He gets to do that. There's a purpose in the ceremonial and civil laws in that they demonstrate for us a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Christ. We could say it this way. The more you understand the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the more you can appreciate what Christ has done for us. It has a wonderful meaning. Uh, the old and the new fit perfectly together. Certainly many people reject the Old Testament as the voice of God. They don't understand these prescriptions that were given to Israel alone, um, you know, the, the dietary laws and all that. And therefore, they want to throw out all the Old Testament as some kind of mistake. And they'll say, well, we should only take the words of Jesus. The temptation is also increased when they compare the Old Testament with current cultural mores, which they want to embrace. And they see those at odds. So I have the culture, I'll have the Old Testament, let's throw out the Old Testament. Uh, I go over these points because I want us to learn to appreciate the Old Testament and see the great benefit to its revelation, 
to show us the character of God. God's character has not changed. He's just changed the way he's dealing with his people. The more we understand the sacrificial system of the old, the more we can appreciate the new and what Christ has done for us. It's kind of ironic, is it not, that you have people today who reject the Old Testament and its law, but in Acts, you have Paul or Peter, excuse me, embracing the old, and he found it difficult to accept what? The new. I mean, the content of this divine message given to Peter regarding the new covenant, that caused him to have some serious reservations about moving forward. He not only hesitated, he said, no. Peter was given the picture of a sheet that had a mixture of all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds. And there was clean and apparently unclean animals in that picture, unclean to the Jew. Because Peter saw this as kind of repulsive. Being a strict Orthodox Jew, they were not permitted to consume certain animals that were considered unclean, and you have this written about in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. And so the Jewish food laws presented a problem for the Jews when they were relating to the Gentiles. I mean, if Jewish believers were going to embrace the gospel, they had to face these food laws and the prejudice toward Gentiles that they considered unclean because they ate this stuff. It was a real problem. But these dietary laws were a poor excuse for prejudice against the Gentiles. And so here's God now having to convince one of the early church leaders of the theology of dietary laws has changed under the new covenant. See, anyone can now be adopted into the family of God. They don't have to change their diet to be accepted by God. A Gentile doesn't have to first follow the Old Testament Jewish rules in order to embrace Christ and the gospel. But see, the Gentiles were still considered unclean. And many Jews thought that they had to make this adjustment leaning towards Judaism first. What does this all say? What it says is the gospel is not sufficient. You, you, you need to do this other stuff in order to be accepted. Hmm. Now, Jesus was actually the essence of the new covenant, was he not? Listen to his words in Mark 7. This is before Acts has taken place. Mark 7, 18 and 19, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Can you imagine how this rocked the world of the disciples? Listen, when we call something unclean that God calls clean, and we expect others to follow those rules that we set up. We call that legalism. We call that bondage. And what was Peter's response to this? By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. I mean, it shows us how deep 
He had a respect for the law, but also how deep this prejudice was toward the Gentiles. I mean, we are complicated beings, are we not, all of us as human beings? And the fact is, look at the first nine chapters of Peter. We would have him at the top of the list in terms of spiritual fitness. I mean, Peter was able to lift some serious spiritual weight. Preaching at Pentecost. Healing people. Boldly proclaiming Christ. It's hard to fathom that a man that was so focused the first nine chapters could have a splinter in his eye the size of prejudice and bias like it was in chapter 10. It was always there. It was just revealed to him in chapter 10. Now granted, many Jews felt this way. He was not the only one. But it was still narrow and old covenant thinking. I mean, this point makes me consider how we as individuals can experience great highs in our walk with Christ. You know, we have a, have a great spiritual season or event, and yet we gloss over or miss maybe deep ingrained sins, such as prejudice or unforgiveness that just seem to be embedded in our hearts. God shines a light on it. We might see a reflection of it, and we just quickly move on without dealing with it, just like Peter. I mean, his theology needed to be adjusted so he could quit making the wrong assumptions about other people, particularly those who didn't abide by the Old Testament law. I mean, there is a thinking, is there not, that presumes that we know what is in the heart of other people that presumes that we can give our own estimation of the spirituality of another person. Why? Because they didn't follow some prescribed code. I mean, insert whatever you want here. A denominational bias, whether people are raising hands, speaking in tongues. And then we move out from that. You can, you can throw people, dehumanize them, look down upon them because maybe they don't have a college degree or, you know, they drive a jalopy, they don't have a nice car, they don't have certain degrees after their name, or maybe they went to the wrong school. Their economic standing isn't what you think it should be or could be. I mean, there's a host of ways in which we express prejudice and bias towards other people, and God calls it all sin. It's all sin. It's like Peter's was. But we see Jesus and Mark, he kind of puts a finger on it, opens the door, and then God speaks to Peter, but Peter insists on holding on to his narrow perspective. And God wants Peter to see, hey, just because of somebody's ethnicity, race, or religious background, doesn't mean I'm limited in how I can move in their life. Peter had to quit making the wrong assumptions about others. He had to quit presuming that he knew what was in the heart of other people. And yet, we're experts at presumption, are we not? It's just natural. See, when you make presumptions, it's just that, you know, we don't, we don't recognize it, at least immediately, just that little bit of arrogance, a little bit of pride. Yeah, I know that guy. I can see what he's doing. You know, I just feel a little, little bit superior. <laughs> 
I mean, to eat all foods, you see, was, was symbolic of fellowshipping without discrimination. Without discrimination for other people of different races, different people groups. Oh, that God would move in our hearts that we would be comfortable in these groups that we have previously considered unclean. Fill in the blank, just depending on what Christian subgroup you've been a part of and what the list is. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. I mean, you'd like to think that he heard it the first time, he admitted his sin the first time, he's going to change, but no. Peter, I think, really appreciates triplicates. He denied Christ three times. It took Christ asking him three times about whether he would love him and feed the sheep. And here it takes three times to get the message across. Old thinking dies hard. Does it not? It dies hard. I think I've told this story to you before, but I can remember when God shined a light about my own prejudice. We grew up in a town where maybe a quarter of my high school was black, outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, We had um, black families in our neighborhood that I was friends with, would hang around. But when I went to college, it was in the middle of Chicago, and one of the assignments, once you got to college, every student had to do what was called a PCW, Practical Christian Work Assignment. And one semester, mine was on the south side of Chicago in the projects. And myself and another student would go, and we would do like these little Bible studies, Sunday school classes for kids in the projects, and a black lady there would host them. She was a dear, dear lady. Uh, Bertha Harris was her name, and she'd always feed us beforehand. But anyway, when we'd go on the bus to get to the projects, we would be the only white people on the bus. Now... Of course, we live in Springfield, 98% or 90-something percent white, right? You get on a bus here, and it's the other guys who are the minority. I was the minority, only white person other than the, the girl I was with. To my shame, I had all of these thoughts run through my head about what these people were thinking about me, about me getting knifed, about, you know, all this stuff, prejudice, bias, going through my head. When I got back to my dorm room, I remember I had a come-to-Jesus meeting, and it was, a, it was a confession of how ugly my attitudes were, and I had to change. I had to change. Now, did I have opportunity before that to change? Absolutely, I did. So I can relate to needing multiple times to get the message. But listen, when we make the wrong presumption, spiritually speaking, about uh, ourselves, thinking we're better than we are, or about others based on some kind of prescription that's not of the Scripture, and then we kind of take this pose of piety, You know what that does? That muddies the gospel. And that muddies what it really means to walk with God. We are not clear 
about what it really means to walk with God because we are putting on top of the scriptural prescriptions all this other stuff. I mean, there was a reason the veil was written too. No longer is there a separation now between God and me. Jesus has taken care of that. There was a reason that Paul said in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Thankfully, we'll jump ahead in the story. I'm not going to cover these verses in great detail, but we know that Peter eventually learned his lesson. In verse 28, it says in Acts 10, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call another person common or unclean. And later in verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. I mean, can we not say that God's grace reaches to places that I think cause us religious folks to get really uncomfortable? <laughs> yeah, I don't think we really understand the grace of God until we are really feeling uncomfortable. I mean, do, do we really think that growth in Christ is all about being comfortable? I mean, some of my best growth moments have been when I've been challenged. I've had ugly attitudes toward others. And by the way, you all know this, but who did Jesus have the most problem with? It was the religious crowd. I'm convinced the spread of the gospel is not primarily hindered by the world. It's hindered by the church. It's hindered by Christians who don't have a vision big enough for what God can do with the gospel. Why? Because of all of the religious friggin' nitpicking that goes on. Write that down. It's in the Bible. Friggin'. <laughs> it's the religious crowd that ended up killing Jesus. Because they thought he didn't follow their religious rules. I mean, when Christianity is lived out in the spirit of the new covenant, there's going to be significant pushback because it stretches us way beyond our comfort zone. Uh, this weekend, I did a wedding for friends. It was a, kind of a friend of a friend, actually. Now, I, I feel like I have the freedom to perform weddings. I do weddings for Christians, obviously. And I do weddings, I, I've done some weddings for, for people I know, for non-Christians, if they're both non-Christians. Not, not a Christian and a non-Christian. And these two were not followers of Christ. So I've done... Weddings for atheists, just kind of a civil duty, favor, whatever. And I think the scriptures give latitude in that. But this past weekend, God was stretching me and doing a wedding where neither party was a follower of Christ. But the audience was interesting. And I confirmed this by talking to one person that was there. I just have to laugh. And I said, now, were most, were, were there any other strippers in the audience? He goes, yeah, most are strippers. All right, all right. Now, I, I, I've done weddings um, on a beach. Uh, I've done a wedding on a living room. I've done wedding on front porches and restaurants with music and TVs blaring. But I got to say, a stripper wedding was unique, all right? Now, I knew it was going to be 
a different experience when people are already starting to drink in the ceremony, all right? I mean, this is not a Catholic wedding. Catholics know how to drink in weddings, all right, by the way. They got it down. If you want to drink, Catholic weddings are the things to go to, right? They love I love, love my Catholic friends. I'm just saying. You got to admit it. You're not going to drink at a Baptist wedding. Admit it. They're not going to let you do that. <laughs> so, I mean, they're drinking before in the ceremony, all right? Now, I don't think I'm any better, all right? My sin doesn't smell better than other people's sin. But I have to confess that my enthusiasm for the festivities was not at an all-time high for this particular wedding. But God was about to blow that apart. You know, I get more nervous at weddings than I do any other thing that I do because I just don't want to screw up somebody's big day, right? You want to get it all just right. And I was kind of explaining this to Janet is that none of that was there for this wedding because I don't think anybody cared. They didn't even know I was even there, what I had to say, obviously, all right? I felt pretty free. There was just no nervousness. Just say what you want. So I tried to insert whatever I could about God being the center of relationships and how longevity necessitates a spiritual dimension, wedding ends. I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to be out of here. I mean, I'm not going to go to the stripper reception. God knows that's not, <laughs> that's not the place for it. <laughs> so I'm approached after the wedding by a woman who is crying. I thought, okay, she's crying because of what she saw at this wedding. But no, no, that's not why. She's crying because of what she heard. And she was dealing with things that every one of us have dealt with. Shame, forgiveness, sin. I mean, if there was ever anyone ripe for God's grace, it was her. And God was wooing her. God was convicting her. And right there, after the stripper wedding, she trusts Christ. There's, there's something beautiful about God showing up at times like that. It's beautiful because it gives God great glory of what he can do in any circumstance, even when maybe we don't see him, you know, don't expect him to do much. God can work in great ways. I was also thankful of what I saw was freedom that you as a church give me to teach and not to prescribe a very, you know, narrow view of what I need to do as a pastor. I'm appreciative of that. May we not presume upon others and limit what God can do. And I think what God is saying here in Acts 10 is, I can do the impossible. I can I can show you my grace in situations that you can't imagine. The people you thought were unclean, let me remind you that your sin isn't any prettier than the people that you deem unclean. Don't dehumanize anyone. Don't presume that you know who God can 
or cannot reach and segregate people. Let's have our arms open to everyone. Let's let the gospel apply to anyone. If people are going to fault us, let them fault us that our grace was too expansive.